What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Kelly Evans and ahead on The Exchange. Some hawkish moves from global central banks, a surprise half-point hike from the BOE, the same just yesterday from Norway, and both countries signaling they're not done. Powell today indicating the Fed still has a long way to go. How many more hikes are still possible and for how long? We'll debate. Plus a bear rally or a new bull market. Our market guest says new bull market, but that the bulls are pretty timid right now. He's here to make his case. And when will retail shrink? Well, shrink. And who is best positioned if that overhang is lifted? We have the names and a debate. But first, let's check on the markets at this hour. Dom Chu has the number. They're relatively flat, but it doesn't tell the whole story. We were pretty down for the most of the morning so far. So we have seen a big move off the lows of the session. The Dow Industrial is down a meager 48 points right now. That's about one-tenth of one percent declines. It's 33,903 the last trade there. We are just about flat for the S&P 500. 43,68, rather, is the level that we're talking about, up about two to three points. At the highs of the session, we were up roughly 11 points and down 14 at the lows. That gives you an idea of the trading range so far today. So just about in the middle of that range overall. And the Nasdaq composite up about one half of 1%, 62 points of the upside, 13,563. We'll talk a little bit more about why that is in just a couple moments here. But one place to keep a close eye on right now, there's some cross current in the commodities market when it comes to the hard side of things. Oil in particular, those prices are down sharply, down about four and a half percent. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate crude, $69.20, so back below the $70 mark. Today, we had some interesting supply and data coming out. We saw an inventory drawdown here in the U.S., but it's perhaps being outweighed by that surprise half percentage point interest rate increase over in the U.K. That's stoking some demand worries out there about whether or not it could be slowing things down for the economy in the U.K. That seems to be weighing on prices a little bit more right now. So keeping it on crude prices now below 70 bucks for U.S. benchmarks. And then the trade today has been Amazon. We just heard in the last half hour or so the headlines coming out about Amazon's web services cloud computing division investing $100 million to help its customers use generative artificial intelligence. That's helping. But even before then, seemingly bouncing back up 3% right now from the FTC filing suit against it. Headlines from yesterday. We had analysts at J.P. Morgan and Loop, amongst others, reiterating their overweight rating, so shaking off the FTC challenge there. But overall, Amazon shares up 3%. One of the reasons why you're seeing a little bit more outperformance, Kelly, in that NASDAQ and the S&P 500 trade. Good point, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. The U.S. has a long way to go in its inflation fight. That was the message from Fed Chair Powell's second day on Capitol Hill. Now, at its last meeting, the Fed took a hawkish pause, but many other central banks are still hiking. The Bank of England surprising this morning with a 50 basis point hike. Overnight, the Swiss National Bank hiked by a quarter point. These follow recent hikes across the globe from Norway to Australia. So could the U.S. follow suit in a few weeks at that July meeting? Let's ask none other than Diane Swong, chief economist at KPMG, and our own senior economic reporter Steve Leisman, welcome to you both. Diane, is Europe playing catch-up? They were a little late in getting started, if I recall. 
They were late in getting started, but I think what's really important is even the Bank of Canada, which was not late in getting started and had the best prospects of a soft landing, has resumed rate hikes in the last month and signaled that it's willing to go further. There's a fear out there that the inflation that we're seeing, even though it's improving, is hanging around at too high of a level for too long, and they don't want to declare victory until the battle is won. And I think that's where we're at. I think they will be raising rates in July. You think they will. Steve, what's the the consensus for a hike? I think there is one. Uh, here in the States, uh, there is definitely one, about 74%. I believe people think uh, they're going to be hiking again in Europe and hiking again in the Bank of England. I think this is pretty helpful, maybe marginally helpful to the U.S. in that you have other banks uh, raising rates to a point where uh, it's approaching where the U.S. is. If you look at the comparison uh, we are number one. I don't know if that's the place we want to be number one in, but we are number one among the developed countries when it comes to rates. We were earlier when we were uh, more aggressive about raising rates and our inflation rate is lower. And if we get some knock on effect from Europe and, and the Bank of England, I think the Bank of England has another set of issues, uh, Kelly, which I think may have to do with Brexit and maybe some uh, systemic or secular inflation relative to Brexit. Uh, their, their inflation rate is not moving. But I think it marginally is going to be helpful to the U.S. Do you, Dan, want to add any color to what you think might be going on in the U.K.? Well, I think in the U.K., Brexit is clearly an issue. And what we saw is one of the worst fears out there is a reacceleration in inflation after they thought they had sort of gotten it under control a bit. And that is the fear that's rippling through central banks around the world. And the, the U.S., although we're further ahead, the Bank of Canada was further ahead than we were and had to go back in. We're talking about going back in. I think this is a theme you're going to see play out through the rest of this year. And the idea that we were as close as we had hoped to the peak in rates is now looking further out. And what's more important is what the central banks are looking for is inflation to cool so real rates rise. And if real, if an underlying inflation does not cool, right. that means they have to go further on nominal rates. Great point. And Steve, one emerging criticism is the fact that we seem to have fiscal policy moving in one direction while monetary policy is moving in another. Uh, Fed chair was just on Capitol Hill. It could have been a chance for him to maybe call that out a little bit and say, listen, $2 trillion of stimulus between Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act, uh, infrastructure bill. We've got massive projects from state and local governments across the country, and the Fed, as a result, has to keep hiking rates. You know, are the two sides of policy aligned here? Uh, he did concede the basic economics of it, even while not commenting on the actual policy, that uh, more government spending in general when it's deficit financed is more uh, inflationary than, uh, than not. Now, uh, a Democratic senator came on afterward and said, well, that's correct. The deficit financing in part comes from the lack of revenue, because if you offset the spending with revenue, then you essentially offset the inflationary impact. And then there was criticism of some of the tax cuts that had been in place over the last several years. So that's both sides of the story here. Um, I think that fiscal policy has not been enough uh, front and center in the discussion. When I started learning about fighting inflation, uh, it was the central bank and the fiscal side, um, and both play a role, and there's not been enough discussion. The question becomes, uh, with the U.S. Uh, def uh, spending so much linked to mandatory spending and so little of it discretionary, it's a political uh, football that nobody really wants to carry. For instance, Diane, some of the infrastructure spending that state and local levels it has to be spent by the end of 2024. So you wonder if they just stretch that out a little bit, would that actually free the Fed up to be more effective and maybe not need to do as many cumulative rate hikes? 
Well, that's just one of many issues, but I think Steve really hits the nail on the head, and that's the mandatory spending we have out there beyond the infrastructure spending, which we need, which we hope will boost productivity growth down the road. Initially, it does add to inflationary pressures where we're at today in terms of labor market. But I think more importantly is the dependency ratio. We have an aging demographic, and those older workers who left the workforce are not coming back. We have gotten prime age workers back and the prime age participation rate in the workforce is up. And we've seen an increase in immigration. All of that is good news to help ease and better align demand and supply in the labor market. That said, we still don't have participation by the over 65 crowd and the over 55 crowd, some of which are sandwiched between caring for children and elderly parents. Yo, for sure. Steve, quick final comment on that. It's a big part of it. Um, we did get the uh, 25 to 54, the prime age work, back to where it was. I think it's actually a little bit above where it was before the pandemic. Uh, and we have to rethink this. Kelly, you and it I is. have talked about this. Uh, figure out ways to get older folks. Uh, I'm one of them now, actually, uh, into the workforce. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I, I enjoy my work. But, you know, I could use a little more time off. Oh. Don't you dare. <laughs> um, Don't you but, dare. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, in any event, there, there, Steve, there is some thinking about that. Age, some... So I'm worried about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, exactly. I mean, it's just uh, um, uh, the the actual the interesting part about this, Kelly, is, and I don't know why this is, but it's not actually the levers; it's the lack of returners. I guess is the best way to put it. There is some flow back yep. into the workforce of those who have left the workforce who come back, and the data show that that's what's been lacking in that older group. And I do know from the surveys that we've done, we did a workforce survey uh, last summer, what we found is that a lot of people left the workforce because of concern about illness or actual illness, and the other part was caring for somebody who was ill, which Diane mentioned, though. So those three aspects, and you could probably put up a graph next to that and the lack of nursing care and health care. And so one way we might think about addressing this is addressing the shortage in nursing care around the country, as well as child care, both of which are categories that have not yep. come back to the pre-pandemic level. Well, since we happen to be showing continuing claims, Diane, let me end by, show, by asking you about that. You know, it's kind of like the tree falling in the woods. Jobless claims for three weeks in a row now, new claims have been at a pretty elevated level and it's really not getting much attention. How serious do you think that is, the recent increase we've seen? We don't like to jump on it too much just because we had that fraud issue in Massachusetts, which distorted our view. But I do think the rising unemployment claims that we're seeing are reflective of earlier layoffs that we saw, people that got severance that were still paid as if they were earning a paycheck, mm. those severances are now wearing out. And that's exactly why you're seeing some of the increases we're seeing. And we have seen in more of the high frequency data, more of a slowdown in cooling in the overall labor market than we've seen in the official data, which reversed three months of declines in the month of April, but is very lagged. The Indeed hiring lab data suggests that we're close to, we're actually below 9 million job openings, if you believe that at space value, that still well above February 2020 levels, but the idea of bringing supply and demand more in line with each other is really important to be able to have wages exceed inflation without it becoming 
losing ground to inflation. Exactly. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Diane Swank and our own Steve Leisman. As the bull bear debate about the market rages on, my next guest is optimistic, saying it's increasingly likely that October marked the low and we're entering a new bull market, even if it's a timid one. Joining me is Urian Timmer, Timmer, Timid, uh, Director of Global <laughs> Macro at Fidelity Investments. It's great to see you, Urian. And um you know, in the in light of the weakening sort of macro backdrop, if we want to call it that, that we were just discussing, what do your observations about the market tell us? Well, the market has gotten impatient, right? We've all been waiting for that other shoe to drop, whether it was, um, you know, the recession or, you know, the, the, the drawdown in liquidity as the Treasury replenishes its uh, cash balance at the Fed. And, you know, the market's now been in a state of, limbo, if you will, for about 18 months, right? The peak was early January of 2022. And that, of course, followed a, a mini bubble, you know, during 2021, when the Fed pushed rates way, way down and kept them there for a long time. That did create an asset bubble. It did elevate the market sort of above its trend channel. And so it, 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 it's good that we fell back um, into it. But 18 months is a long time, you know, 10 months of declining and then, um, another eight months of just sitting around doing nothing. Uh, and the market has been in a trading range now for a year, right? June of last year was that momentum low, and then October was the final low. And so I think the market's just getting impatient. You, you see the earnings estimates are actually starting to improve. The revisions are starting to, um, uh, you know, uh, get better now. And uh, 2024, you know, the estimates could be all wrong, of course, but the, the consensus estimate is now for about an 11 percent gain in 2024. And the Fed, of course, is not done yet. Well, we, we certainly um, got, got the message loud and clear uh, in the last couple of days. But with the Fed at five and a quarter, presumably going to five and a half or even five and three quarters. And if we think about the neutral rate being somewhere around three, three and a half, you know, the Fed is reasonably above neutral or reasonably restrictive that I do think we're getting closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning, which is safe to say because we've already seen 500 basis points of increases. So I think the market is just starting to look ahead, um, and the market always looks ahead, right. not always correctly, of course, but it does always look ahead, and and I think it's it's playing the soft landing card, and you know we have to just see if if that's the right card to play. But what would tell you that this is a new bull market versus just a rally within a bear market that will resume once we you know figure out maybe what exactly the the data six months from now is going to look like? So I, I, I had been on the fence for a while just because the leadership in the market was very, very narrow. And we all know about, you know, the mega cap tech names, the fangs, the AI theme. Um, so it's been a very narrow market, which is not something you would see in an early cycle bull market, right? Typically what happens is you have a bear market. Part of it is is a reset in rates as the Fed raises the cost of capital. We certainly got that last year. And then the other part usually is, is sort of a, a flush in earnings where all the earnings estimates just start to come down. Um, and then that washes out economically sensitive stocks, interest rate sensitive stocks, anything that was kind of dr driven by liquidity. And, and we've seen part of that. We had the bank stocks a few months ago. We had the meme stocks a year ago, um, but we, we haven't really seen that capitulation and then that broadening rally, that breath thrust that we tend to see. Um, it's starting to improve now, like small caps, mid caps are starting to improve the S&P 500 
equal weighted index is starting to look a lot better. But we don't have that confirmation yet, and that's something that I would be looking for. And of course, many, many have pointed out markets up 20% from the low. I, I don't really follow that as, as, a, as an arbitrary you know, guideline. But what I do know from studying history is that bear market rallies don't tend to retrace more than half the preceding decline, maybe hmm. maybe 60%. And the S&P 500 cap-weighted index is, has retraced about 64%. The equal weight, not as much, maybe about half. So we're still not quite there yet, but we're getting closer to the point where it's really hard to call this a bear market rally. And then the only other thing we can call it, other than a bull market, is just a prolonged trading range. And sure. we haven't had many of those that are this long. The one exception is the second half of the 1940s, which actually is an analog that I've, I've looked at uh, quite a bit in the last couple of years. Sure. And we've heard about that as well, saying, you know, um, well, we can go into that another time, but, uh, but your point is taken. Yuri, thanks for joining us today, making the case. We'll see. <laughs> Yuri and Tim are joining us from Fidelity Investments. Coming up, Intel up this year, but far trailing its peers. Wall Street's top chip analyst says this could be as bad as it gets, though. He will make his case next. Plus, after an 18-month drought, did Kava's IPO show there's now appetite for IPOs? What could make those waiting in the wings jump into the market? And as we head to break, here's a broad look at how the major averages are trading, with the Nasdaq in positive territory by about a third of a percent, the S&P down 2 to 43.63, the Dow down a quarter percent, and the 10-year note just a hair above 380. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. A major day in Washington for India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, meeting President Biden and top CEOs as the nation's influence rises amid U.S.-China tensions. Seema Modi is live at the White House. Seema, how's it going down there and what's the significance? And that Biden-Modi presser is expected to begin very shortly here, Kelly. Well, as we have pointed out, several U.S. companies are using Prime Minister Modi's state visit to the White House as an opportunity to announce expansion plans into India, Micron revealing a $2.7 billion new chips plant in Modi's home state of Gujarat with plans to create about 5,000 jobs in the country. While Applied Materials will invest $400 million to launch a new engineering center. Now, this, of course, comes, as we know, the semiconductor industry has been trying to find ways to uh, diversify away from China. India also prioritizing national security on this trip with plans to buy high-grade drones and then getting that nod of approval to jointly produce General Electric's highly coveted F-35 
14 military jet engines. That is seen as a win for the U.S. as Russia has been the dominant supplier of defense equipment to India for years now. Senior administration officials telling reporters a new partnership on quantum computing and AI could also be expected. Uh, so we're waiting any news on that, especially tomorrow when Google and others are expected to uh, join that tech roundtable with Modi and Secretary Raimondo, among others. Kelly. And how could this maybe even factor into the uh, election next year? Well, if China is going to be a political punching bag uh, going into the 2024 presidential election, Kelly, uh, President Biden could certainly look to India or mention the fact that this administration has prioritized its relationship with India. And that could certainly bode well for uh, for him going into 2024. And not to mention the 5,000 Indians that showed up here on the lawn to show their support for Modi. That could potentially be a winning point for Biden as well. Seema, thank you very much. We look forward to hearing more details as that gets underway. Seema Modi. Most chip stocks have, meanwhile, been on a tear this year as AI kindles huge demand for more processing power. Even Intel higher, although it lags market leaders NVIDIA and AMD. And the shares are still down 13 percent in total over the past 52 weeks. But my next guest says the stock may be bottoming. Joining me now is Stacey Raskin, senior semiconductor analyst at Bernstein. It's great to see you, Stacey. Welcome back. Good to be here. Thanks. Intel bottoming. Tell me more. Yeah, so there, there's like the tactical and the structural, right? So on the tactical front, I am of the belief that for the first time in a while, numbers like into the back half could potentially be too low rather than too high. It's been a while. Uh, we upgraded the stock oh, a couple of months ago on, on that call. And it's more around a PC channel normalization than anything else. They were overshipping demand. Now they're undershipping. That normalizes into the back half and things get a little better. Um, they, they recently just sort of qualitatively upticked at some of the industry conferences a couple of weeks ago. So that seems to be playing out. I'd also say for Intel, at least in the near term, it gets easier to argue that it's as bad as it can get. Like they, they've already slashed the dividend. They got people excited that gross margins will be getting back into the 40 percent range. Like it's 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 unaggressive at, at, at that rate. Longer term, they've still got a lot of wood to chop. And, and, and you know, they, they did an event yesterday where they were talking about their move to make it more transparent, both internally and externally, um, what it costs them to actually manufacture their wafers and, and help them help them incentivize their own business units to make better choices. Because it turns out Intel is not a very efficient manufacturer of parts. And um, the stock sold off a little bit yesterday. I think people were expecting them or hoping that they might announce a foundry customer. They didn't announce that. But at the same time, you know, the first thing in, in all these things is to admit that you have a problem. They, they finally sure. really admitted that they have a problem. Sure. Um, and they put out some numbers around some of the cost savings that are a little more concrete than what they've done. So that was at least somewhat encouraging, I thought. I mean, he, the CEO has practically been on an apology tour and really making <laughs> it clear that he wants to restore this company to the, the leadership position it once had. Whether he can feasibly do that is another question. And your comment that they didn't announce a foundry partner seems rather yeah. significant. I don't know. I wasn't really expecting them to. They, they were pretty honest. They, they're, they're what they call PDKs, process development kits, the things that like the foundry partners need in order to design semiconductors that work on their processes. Those, those PDKs are not mature. They're not baked yet. It's hard for any customers to really sign up and, and, until they know that, that the roadmap and everything is there. So they're, they're not there yet. I wasn't really expecting it. I actually don't think it was hugely expected either, but there was some hope. They actually did say they will be announcing one later in the year. So, I mean, that that's still out there, I, I, I guess. But like I said, I just thought it was a little refreshing that, you know, Pat's no longer out there pounding the table saying all their problems in the rearview mirror and, it, and it's, it's full steam ahead. 
they're admitting that they've got problems. And but but at least now they're starting to put a little bit more of a roadmap together on how they're actually going to fix those problems. So like I said, I'm not an Intel bull, as, as you probably know, but I, I found at least yeah. that that, you know, um, confession and actually putting some numbers behind it, I found that to be at least some, like, mildly refreshing, at least. I find this almost an apology for, for even turning slightly more bullish, shall we say. I just was <laughs> going to ask you at 32, which is where the shares are today, what is yeah. that valuation kind of price in? How conservative <laughs> or not is it? You, you know, the stock bottomed around 25 or $26, which is about book value. And so it's a little higher than I know what it is, 1.2, 1.3 times book. Um, they still own a fairly sizable mobilized stake. I think they still own 88% of mobilized. So you could take that out and it would be like even cheaper. So it's not an aggressive valuation. It, it's gone lower. And certainly if people like cannot grow convinced over time that their recovery path actually has some legs, I mean, certainly it could go back to where it did. But, but it bottomed around book value, is, is, which was about $25, $26 for them. So, so it's around 30-ish now, a little higher. If we're showing the forward PE of 112, I assume they're making more than, you know, a couple cents. I mean, what, what's going on with earnings? No, in no, the next- they, they, they're not. Like, they're only making a couple of cents. Wow. Right? So uh, numbers have probably, from the peak a year and a half, two years ago, numbers are probably down 90 or 95%. And frankly, there's some accounting changes in there that they made. Without those accounting changes, they probably would have would have gone below zero. Wow. So numbers have come down an, an awful lot. So you can't read too much into the forward 12-month price to forward earnings right now. Um, uh, they're not at a, a normalized kind of run rate. I mean, the question of what is that normalized run rate is still up for debate. Hopefully, it's higher than where they are right now, which actually is. I, I can't remember where the street is right now. 20 cents or something wow. like that. I can't remember. It's St- low. That is yeah. low. That, that yeah. is. <laughs> Stacey, so, thank some of it. Some of it's cyclical. Like, you know, it, it's, it's some of it's internal. Some of it's cyclical. The cyclical get better. And then and then we'll see, like, what, what the internal uh, efforts have to have to bring. Fair enough. Stacey Raskin, thanks for joining us to un- unpack it all. Oh, we, we do appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It from Bernstein Research. Coming up, retail theft has been eating into profits, but one of our guests sees things improving, and he brings several names that could benefit as a result. This is one of them. We'll debate that ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map as Merck and Microsoft lead the way on a relatively muted day. Pretty evenly split, but a few more decliners than advancers. IBM and Boeing both down more than 2%. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Wheat briefly crossing above its 200-day moving average today as more attention is focused on what some soft commodities have been doing lately. Dom Chu has a look over at the Telestrator. Hi, Dom. There's a reason why, Kelly, and it's because either weather-related events or conditions for growing and harvesting have come into question in certain parts of the world, places like the United States, also South Asia. Other parts of the world are driving at least the near to medium term prices higher. Now, what I'm showing you right now is the wheat prices that you alluded to just up about a half a percent so far today, but just touching that 200 day moving average, as you point out. But this is the move here just over the last couple of weeks here that has caught traders attention. That's the wheat side of things. 
Also check out what's happening with corn because we're seeing a similar dynamic play out there as well. A movement higher just over the course of the last couple of weeks here, just trying to fi- finish above its 50-day and just trying to get to that 200-day moving average right now for corn prices. But again, some of those conditions with drought, dryness, also rain or, rain or weather-related events around the world driving some of those prices higher. What it has done is taken one particular ETF, this particular one that tracks a broader basket of soft commodities, commodities that we grow and harvest. This is the Invesco Deutsche Bank Agriculture ETF, ticker DBA. It's down 1% today, but check out the move that we've seen just over the course of the last few weeks here in this particular ETF. What it does highlight, Kelly, is that there are some near to medium term dynamics that can make these prices very volatile. And for now, the momentum is very much to the upside, Kelly. Back yeah, quite so. I will have more on that uh, if it continues. Dom, thanks. Let's get to Contessa Brewer. Meantime, for a CNBC News update. Contessa? Kelly, the mystery over who posted Congressman George Santos' bail is over. Court documents show that Santos' dad and aunt guaranteed the half-million-dollar bond after he was charged last month with more than a dozen federal counts. Several media organizations, including NBC News, fought to unseal the document. Santos's lawyer tried to fight that effort, claiming it could jeopardize the co-signer's jobs or even result in physical injury. The man accused of killing two people outside a Washington State musical festival told police he was high on psychedelics during the shooting. U.S. Army Specialist James Kelly is facing two counts of first-degree murder, among other charges. Police say Kelly told them he was hallucinating when he opened fire and killed a couple walking by a campground near the festival and believed the world was ending. A new survey found nearly half of U.S. honeybee colonies died last year. Honeybees are, of course, crucial to the food supply because they pollinate crops. Scientists say climate change, pesticides, and parasites all contribute to the large number of deaths. But that is alarming. Kelly. I feel like, has this been, how many years can like half of the honeybees die? What are we and, down to at this and point? That, and that colony collapse, and, and you know, while they, can't, they have trouble pinpointing exact causes for it, they know that all of this contributes to it. But what do we do about it? Yeah. I mean, we need them for food. No, I, I try to plant, you know, like native wildflowers, yes. but I'm so bad. I can't even keep them alive. I can't keep native wildflowers alive to get for the bees. There's uh, help for that. Yeah. Contessa, thanks. Coming up, shares of Kava are up 3% today and still hovering just below their opening price of 42. Does Kava's relatively strong showing spell an end to the recent IPO drought? We'll discuss that next with the Dow down 69. Welcome back. Shares of Kava down about 9% from its opening trade of about 42 a share, though still well above where they priced down at 22. Bob Bassani taking a look at what's next for the IPO market after their relatively strong debut, while Kate Rogers is drilling down on the other restaurants that may be next, including one name in particular. Kate, let's start with you. Kelly, the next name up on deck is Gen Restaurant Group, which Bomb reports will price next week. It's a concept of 32 Korean barbecue locations, one of the largest chains in the casual Asian dining space in the U.S. Gen boasts impressive average unit volumes of $6 million a location, according to its S1. For context, that's about three times what a Cava pulls in, double what a Chipotle pulls in. Gen also touts the profitability of its restaurants in that filing. Now, turning back to Cava, so far, as you mentioned, down around 10% on the week, up over 80% from its initial pricing. I spoke with 
with analyst Mark Kalinowski on these two concepts, and he noted both Korean barbecue and Mediterranean food are a little more niche compared to a Chipotle Mexican food or a Shake Shack's burger and fries or even a sweet green with its salads, the latter of those names going public in the last few years. All three of those stocks have performed very well this year. Shack is up about 80%, Chipotle near 50 Sweet Green up over 25%, although well off of its IPO highs. So what's next here? After Jen, a few other concepts are on the table, including Panera, which announced it would replace its CEO in July in preparation for an eventual IPO, but no timeline there. Then Fogo de Chao and Fat Brands Twin Peaks also filing paperwork to go public. So timelines remain to be seen for some of those names, but Kava could give an indication on investor interest in this space. Back Twin over to you. Peaks, Jen, either I need to get out more or these are pretty niche. <laughs> they are and smaller too. But oddly enough, Kelly, when you look at some of the stock performances, casual names have actually been performing a bit better than the fast food players so far this year. I talked to Blue Shirt Group. It's an IPO advisory group. They didn't work on the Kava deal, but essentially they said Kava could kind of be a bellwether for restaurant IPOs to see what the appetite is. Restaurants, we got to remember, an attainable luxury and a potential downturn. Panera could be similarly viewed uh, from a price perspective for consumers like a Kava. Jen is a bit more casual and a bit pricier. So it remains to be seen how they all do. All right. Bob Bassani, meantime, what about beyond the restaurant stock? Some of the other names that we should be watching for a debut. There are some signs of green shoots, although it's still very, very tentative. So what's got my interest is next week, three companies have announced that are fairly large. What's large? $300 million range. That's a little unusual because we haven't seen three like that in a long, long time. So here they are. This is Fidelis Insurance. This is a very large global property reinsurance company. They're trying to float at the midpoint about $300 million. Kodiak Gas Services is a natural gas compression company. They're also trying to float in the area of $300 million. By the way, all these are on the, on the NYSE. Uh, and finally, Savers Value Village. Believe it or not, this is the largest for-profit thrift operation in the United States. Very interesting company. Didn't really know much about it until I started reading about it uh, this week. These were all announced this week. Believe it or not, Kate, we have not, uh, Kelly, we have not seen uh, $900 million raised in a long, long time in a single week. And this is the first time, I think it's only happened once in a year and a half, where we've seen three companies try to raise more than $100 million. So that's a very good sign. Let me just co comment on Kava, because the amazing thing here is it's holding up but below the initial uh, closing price. So remember, it priced at $22 this week. Uh, it opened at 42 and it closed a little bit above that. So that's the important. It closed to $43. The next day, it turned down. And as you can see, it's trading in the 38 to 39 range. So here's the next day curse. Good news opens strong. That's a good sign to other IPO candidates out there. Very good signal. Bad news is trades down the next day. This is the next day curse. So everyone who got the initial allocation the night before, they're making a lot of money. But the average investor who bought on that day, they're down. And of course, as you know, we've talked about this, Kelly. This is a big problem with IPOs. Investors on the first day tend to lose in the following months. And of course, what you got to do there is improve the pricing. Lower prices, but the IPO People, they want higher prices. Finally, let me just point out the IPO ETF. We were at a nine-month high last week. It's been down this week, and for a very good reason here. Remember what motivates the IPO market. Number one is higher stock prices in general. S&P was at a 52-week high last week. It's faltered a little bit, and then more stable interest rates. That's a major issue. Interest rates, as you know, Kelly, moving towards the high end of the recent trading range. I'm talking about yields, and that could be a major issue 
for IPO. So let's keep an eye now on whether we get these unicorns that are out there, the Reddits of the world, the other big, big companies, including Arm, that's been talking about this. Let's see if we get some big names in the next couple of weeks. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Any comment on that, Bob, as to why they haven't seized this market opportunity? Well, the, the, the cynics will say, OK, nice, Bob, you got three companies. They're good. 300 million. That's a lot. Uh, but they're niche players. Uh, the big guys that really have a lot at stake uh, here are hesitant because they're worried about the recent rise in interest rates that they've seen. They're worried about the market sort of topping out. They're going to announce they're going to go public three weeks from now, and the S&P will be 5% lower. All of this could happen. Maybe we'll, we'll start trading at a higher new range, higher yield range. But the bottom line is, if this is not the time, when is? Are they going to wait till September? We don't know. This seems to be a very good opportune moment. And uh, I'm not surprised a company like Arm has been actively talking about initial uh, front end investors for their IPO. Bob, thank you. Bob Bassani reporting from the New York Stock Exchange. Still ahead, are existing home sales now bottoming following the gangbuster performance of newly built homes this year? We'll dig into the data and this home builder hitting an all time high today. All the details on all the housing drama next. As we head to break, let's check on those yields that Bob was just referencing as the 210 yield spread hits its lowest level since March 10th, down almost a full point again. The two-year yield around 4.8 percent. Ten-year, 380. We're back after this. Welcome back. What a difference a year has made for the home builders. Pulte hitting an all-time high a year to the day of its 52-week low. That was our mystery chart. Shares have doubled in that time. DR Horton hitting an all-time high yesterday, just a day off of its year low. KB Homes, a year high, 364 days from its low after better-than-expected earnings and guidance. Now, we know new homes have been selling like hotcakes, but are existing homes also showing some life? Diana Olick joins me to dive into all of the numbers. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. And the short answer is no. May was kind of a solid meh. Existing home sales didn't move from April, and they were down just over 20% from May of last year. Supply is still the big problem. Just 1.08 million homes for sale at the end of May, down 6.1% year over year. There were nearly twice as many homes for sale right before the pandemic hit. These May sales are based on closing, so homes that went under contract likely in March and April. Mortgage rates were choppy during that period. The average on the 30-year fix started March over 7%, then dropped sharply but briefly to start April before heading higher again. But builders are saying buyers are getting used to the new normal of higher rates. We heard that last week from Lennar and yesterday from KB Home. Both those builders beat expectations in their quarterly earnings report, citing strong demand. With the lack of resale inventory that I mentioned, and market price is now starting to increase. Buyers are demonstrating a higher sense of urgency than we saw earlier this year. Now we get the monthly read on sales of newly built homes next week. There is much more supply there than on the pre-owned market. It'll be interesting to see what happens, though, with home prices. Kelly? I mean, listen, I, I could go on for 10 minutes about why this is all so fascinating, but we're trying to figure out what's going on with the cycle, right? So we have... We have Housing has fallen 35% by activity from the end of 2020. Normally, we'd say, great, classic sign, the economy is going to be next. But now we have signs that housing is at least not getting dramatically worse. And you wonder, well, if it starts to improve, then is that going to improve enough to kind of help the overall economy right at the time that other areas are weakening? It's extremely confusing and strange. 
Yeah, and I think the confusing part is in the home prices themselves. I mean, we were seeing prices pull back. That started last summer when mortgage rates went really high. But now we're actually starting to see them gain steam again. And that's because of this supply and demand issue. And that's the part that when you talk about what are these normal drivers of the economy, this is not normal. We have never seen supply this low and demand this strong. And the housing market just so out of whack with that because you would think that prices would be pulling back due to higher mortgage rates. That always happens historically. It's not happening right now. Over the last couple of months, we have seen prices increasing. The other thing I think about is that, you know, it's going to take a falling 10-year yield. Forget what the Fed's doing. The 10-year yield has to fall if we want mortgage rates to come down, which would unlock people who are trapped in their houses. But the 10 years only going to fall if the economic outlook is, is a lot worse. And if it gets a lot worse, but then that unfreezes the market so that the market gets better, then could that also be like a counterbalancing help to the economy? We've never been through a period like this before. Right. But you talk about the 10-year yield falling. Look, it would have to fall really dramatically because when we talk about people who are locked into their homes, it's not that they have a mortgage rate that's around 5% or even around 4%. The majority of homeowners today, they have mortgage rates around 3%. Yeah. So even if the rate comes back a little bit, it's never going to get to where it was because the Fed's not going to drop to zero, right? We don't think so anyway. So you're not going to see those buyer, those homeowners unlocked anytime soon. It's just going to be when they decide, well, that move up to maybe 5% from 3% isn't as bad as it is now. Right. Especially because, you know, with QT and everything, you know, you need you need the 10-year plunging. <laughs> you need QE starting. I, I don't know. It's uh, it, We'll see. Diana, thank you very much for now. We appreciate it. Diana Olek. Still ahead, retailers from Foot Locker to Dollar Tree are warning about the impact of theft-related shrink in their most recent earnings reports. But one analyst thinks we'll see some improvement on that front, and he lays out the name's best position to benefit from what you might call shrinking shrink. We'll talk about that next. Welcome back. Retailers from Kohl's to CVS reporting shrink or the unexplained loss of inventory is leading to smaller than expected profits. A spike in organized retail crime being reported by big names like Target, Dollar Tree, Home Depot and Walmart. In fact, more than half of retailers say they've seen rising shrink over the past 12 months. But my next guest says the shrink era, maybe it's hit its cyclical peak and we could see some improvement for some of these companies. Joining me now is Michael Lasser, equity research analyst at UBS. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. We, your note, I think, came out a day or two ago. We happened to have a retail analyst on Power Lunch that day who said, no way, the, the companies he's talking to still think this is a major problem for them and it's not going away anytime soon. Well, keep in mind that the market tends to look forward six to 12 months. And we think this factor will improve in the coming future for three reasons. One, shrink has been up and down historically. We went back and looked at 20 years of conference call transcripts and found that mentions of shrink, they go up, they go down. Number two, retailers are not just sitting still letting this happen to them. They're taking action to try and address it by implementing technology and other factors. For example, we spent time with the leadership at Dollar Tree yesterday, and they said one of the, comp one of the, the, the products that they're seeing uh, very high levels of shrink is men underwear, men's underwear. I didn't ask. <laughs> but he said eventually over time, they'll just take that out and won't offer that anymore. And then third, uh, next week, there'll be a new law that put, is put in place called the Inform Act that will require high volume sellers on third party marketplaces to register. Uh, and that that's going to hold a, uh, some more accountability for how this shrink gets monetized. So over time, we do think that this will be a tailwind 
for the profitability of several retailers. You're right. And one more before I get to the names. Obviously, a big change in legislation like that could finally kind of tackle this problem. But just to use your example, if Dollar Tree stops selling men's underwear because people are stealing it, that doesn't sound like a very good business proposition. Well, ultimately, it's a business proposition that's going to fall on all of us as consumers because either these retailers are going to take these products out or they're going to pass along the increased cost because ultimately this is a cost in some case a very steep one that's borne by the very brave men and women who work in retail uh, but they're going to pass that cost along to you and I as consumers so we're going to be the ones that ultimately bear the burden of that um, but over because they're in the business of, of trying to maximize their profitability and, and they yeah. will do that over time. No, they have to stay in business. And if people are stealing their inventory, they're going to have to do something, uh, raise prices or, or what have you to try to, to keep a go of it. If you're right and things get better in the next couple of months because of legislative changes or otherwise, who could benefit the most? Which stocks do you think people would want to buy now on this kind of current weakness? So the dollar stores have been hammered on this shrink both Dollar General and Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree recently lowered its earnings uh, by more than 5% due to this factor alone. So as it gets better, Dollar Tree should be a disproportionate beneficiary of that. Similarly with Dollar General, Target has seen a more than 200 basis point decline in its operating margin from shrink over the last few years. Some improvement in this factor alone can help it get to from its current level around a 5% operating margin to 7% over time. These are a couple of the names that stand to disproportionately benefit from shrink when it does get better. One final observation, and maybe it's changed since 2021, but that year it turned out that 37% of shrink was external theft, 29% was due to internal theft. Do you think internal theft is still a problem and does it change the way that the nature by which companies might have to tackle this? So, so I think that's a function of where we are in the labor market. Because the labor market is so tight, attrition or turnover for a lot of retailers is very high. So when you get bring in new, new employees, you're going to be more subject to a shrink, both internal and external shrink. And so as the labor market starts to cool, which is the intended impact of all this monetary policy, that's going to have the unintended impact of benefiting shrink in our view. Finally, are companies adding internal security to keep their employees safe? Is that a profit risk? What they're doing is adding employees, working with external authorities, implementing technology. That's that's going to be a key over the long term, using artificial intelligence and other means to, to cost effectively tackle this issue. But they will tackle it over time. It's really not a question of if, it's more of a question of when. All right, Michael Lasser, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. A lot of buzz about this new note. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 